The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's a losing proposition to just keep funding from, from the European side without the significant American contributions, particularly on the military side. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 11th, 2023. The Senate last week failed to move forward the National Security Supplemental, which includes a large package of aid for Ukraine. The holdup? Migration at the southern border and Republican insistence that the administration and Democrats will have to swallow major policy changes in order to get the Ukraine aid through. Meanwhile, the mood in Kiev is a little down. The counteroffensive did not go as planned. The U.S. aid situation and the European commitment to Ukraine is alarming, and domestic politics are returning after a hiatus during the first couple years of the war. To chew over the state of Ukraine and its support from the United States, we got together Eric Charamella of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a former CIA Ukraine analyst, and Molly Reynolds, Lawfare's senior editor and congressional guru. We talked about the state of the Ukraine aid package in Congress. We talked about whether a deal on the border is possible. We talked about whether such a deal could pass the House. And we talked about Charamela's recent trip to Kiev and the mood there as Congress dithers. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 11th, The Complicated Politics of Ukraine Aid. So, Molly, let's start with the news, which is that the Senate last week failed to get cloture to move forward with the National Security Supplemental, which included the Ukraine aid package. Let's start with why that failed, given that there is very solid majority support for Ukraine aid in the Senate. Why did that fail? And what are we hung up on as negotiations continue, if they continue? Sure. So the National Security Supplemental has four basic pieces to it. Um, Most of what we'll talk about today, since we are uh, substantively focused on Ukraine in this podcast, um, and then also um, because the principal hangup is about the provisions related to the border, we'll kind of focus on those two items. But just uh, for completeness, uh, note that the other t- there are two other 
uh, major components to the national security supplemental, one of which is assistance for Israel. The other is some assistance for uh, Taiwan um, and sort of the U.S. interests in the Indo-Pacific. So, but the the principal uh, sticking point um, as it stands now with the progress of this package through the Senate, we can talk about its prospects in the House um, separately, but is this the state of these negotiations over the border provisions? And so these talks have been uh, going on for a little while in the Senate. It's clear at this point that Democrats are going to have to accept something that could be described as border policy changes in exchange for Republican support for Ukraine aid. What's in the version of the supplemental that the Biden administration uh, requested and then that uh, Leader Schumer uh, brought up for a vote last week that failed is uh, additional money uh, for the border, but doesn't have some of the kinds of policy changes that Republicans um, are seeking. And so these these talks that, as of when we are recording this, are ongoing, are being led for Republicans by um, Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma, um, being led for Democrats by Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, and then Senator Kirsten Sinema, the independent who caucuses with the Democrats um, from Arizona, uh, is a sort of third key player in them. And is your impression that the Ukraine aid is among Senate Republicans controversial in its own right beyond, uh, you know, a certain group of relatively fringe senators like J.D. Vance? And or is it simply a hostage to the border negotiations, as in, you know, has opinion changed substantively in the Senate enough to actually endanger Ukraine aid, or is it simply hung up on this unrelated domestic policy dispute? So I think the way to think about this is as follows. So you're right to name that there are some Republican senators who are opposed to additional assistance for Ukraine, let's say, let's call it on the merits. They have a sort of policy reason for not wanting to support um, additional assistance. And we can, I think that probably comes from a, a number of different uh, sources, but folks who are um, who are substantively opposed to additional assistance. I think where the rest of the conference is, is somewhere between that, so opposed to additional assistance, and vigorously supportive of additional assistance, which is where, say, uh, minority leader Mitch McConnell is, what I think has changed over time is kind of how important is it to these Republican senators who are, I would say, you know, weakly to strongly supportive of additional assistance? How important is it to them to get that additional assistance? And how does getting it fit in with other policy priorities that they have, which is sort of where we come to this place uh, where it's tied to um, policy changes um, with respect to the US's southern border. And I think one thing that kind of helps us understand this evolution and also makes this a little bit tricky politically is that we're not really talking about uh, sort of this for that trade. So it's not at this point that, you know, Democrats really want additional assistance for Ukraine and Republicans really want these border policy changes. There are folks in both parties for whom each of those two issues is a winner versus a loser. And the 
Democrats who want to drive towards policy change on immigration are the ones who are in vulnerable seats, which I think has shaped Republicans' incentive to compromise on the border piece to try and get to the place where um, they also approve assistance for Ukraine. And I think that sort of the weaker Republican support for Ukraine on its merits gets, the harder it is to see enough of those folks wanting to support that aid so badly that they're not sensitive to the kind of political pressure not to give Democrats a potential win on immigration, particularly some Democrats who are in vulnerable seats. So that, I mean, I'll just note, that was a pretty political analysis. Well, it, it is the Senate. Yeah. Um, and so I don't want to, um, and we're going to talk, I'm sure, about this at, at substantial length in this podcast, particularly since Eric just returned from a trip to Ukraine. I don't want to um, frame this entirely as about sort of who are the U.S. political winners and losers in these negotiations, because fundamentally, this is about providing needed assistance to our allies in Ukraine. But I think to understand kind of where the hangup is right now, you really do have to get into kind of these political weeds and thinking about what the two parties and the elements within the two parties would get out of a deal and also um, kind of why how important is getting to a deal getting to yes for different players yeah I would just say that to anybody among our listeners who is inclined to be irritated at Molly for talking about this in overtly political terms that is the way you talk about the United States Senate. Uh, and it doesn't matter how important or critical the issue is. Uh, that's the language of the Senate is horse trading. All right. So I want to turn to Eric before we go talk about the House. But before we do that, I, I want to lean in even a little bit further to the political uh, nature of the Senate conversation and just ask you, is there a border deal that you can imagine that in the next couple of weeks breaks this logjam? So I think there is still space for a deal. I think if there wasn't, the negotiators would not still be talking, at least as of when we're recording this. Um, uh, reports indicate that they are still sort of exchanging uh, exchanging paper as the, the lingo goes. Um, so I do think there remains a possibility for a deal. I think one important question is over what time frame does that deal happen? Um, and we can talk, uh, particularly when Eric comes into the conversation, having just been to Ukraine, about sort of how acute is the, the need for immediate um, additional assistance from the United States? Um, the Biden administration had a, a letter that went to the Hill that suggested that um, assistance by the end of the calendar year was really vital um, if it was going to kind of get to the Ukrainians sort of on a time horizon that was most useful to them. But I think even if there is space still for a deal, it's becoming less and less clear to me that we could get to that deal by the end of the calendar year. Um, some of that has to do, and we can talk more about the House in a little bit, some of that has to do with the fact that um, the House uh, Speaker, Mike Johnson, has indicated that he plans to um, recess the House for the holidays, I think, on or about December 15th. It's very hard to see if 
the idea of getting to an agreement by then, and also more importantly, actually moving it through both chambers by then, particularly since the National Defense Authorization Act uh, is also on the um, on the agenda uh, between now and then, and the, the House may or may not uh, take votes on extending uh, Section 702. And so there's there are other competing um, things on the agenda. So uh, sort of my bottom line is I think there's still space to get to yes um, for the sides to drive to a deal. That's not to say it's definitely going to happen, um, but I'm, I'm not taking it off the table at this point. But it, I think the bigger question right now is whether it gets kicked into next year and then it comes with its own set of kind of political challenges and how it may get linked to other issues as well. But uh, that's kind of how I see things at this point. All right. So let's, uh, uh, we will come back to the politics in the House shortly, but uh, this is a good moment to get a sense of how all this is playing in Kyiv. Eric, you just returned from Ukraine. Uh, my impression of the mood there from my own conversations is that it is quite dour. How are people feeling and uh, what are the sources of the anxiety? Sure. So um, I spent a few days there uh, a couple of weeks ago meeting with a bunch of military and intelligence officials, folks in, in foreign policy. And I would say the mood is primarily one of frustration uh, rather than necessarily doom and gloom. You know, there's frustration that the counteroffensive didn't achieve the objectives, you know, that Ukraine had hoped, but also that the West, you know, had unrealistic expectations for what was possible and that Ukraine was being forced to kind of fight in a way that, you know, the United States never would have launching a major ground offensive with no air cover and into heavily mined areas with drones overhead. Uh, and so they feel like, you know, the criticisms of kind of the total failure of the counteroffensive are, are overblown in the West and that the narrative has kind of been unfair to them. They're also obviously paying close attention to what's going on in, in Congress, um, very frustrated there, feeling like, you know, the United States is not as reliable a partner as it was, you know, earlier this year and last year. But then also that Europe kind of is having challenges too. There's Polish truckers who are blocking the border and Hungarian threat of a veto of decisions that um, could be made at the next European Council meeting uh, at the end of this week on whether to open formal accession talks with Ukraine and to grant another, um, you know, 50 billion euros in long-term aid. So there's a real sense of, of frustration. And, you know, one of the things that I have heard both informally and actually, there was a significant article in the Kiev Independent by uh, Francis Farrell that articulated this very bluntly, is that there's kind of a developing understanding in Kiev that the West and the United States does not really want Ukraine to win. I have to say, I find this surprising although perhaps understandable given, given the domestic politics of a lot of the West countries, including this one. Are you, were you hearing that, that sort of frustration and, and sense that a kind of long-term stalemate is maybe a, a Western objective, whereas the Ukrainian objective is really victory? 
Yeah, there's definitely a uh, sense there that there's a mismatch in objectives, that the West is kind of comfortable with a lot of these intermediate states and hasn't really figured out for itself what it wants Ukraine to look like in the future and European security to look like and Russia. And so, you know, until we define what our actual strategic objectives are and our interests that are at play here, fundamentally, we're not going to be able to devote the kind of resources that are needed. And so, you know, they do feel like we've given them just enough to hang on and not enough to win. I think some of the critiques that they have of, you know, that we kind of deliberately metered out support so that they would just kind of have minimal military uh, successes and that we were afraid of catastrophic victory and so on. I think that kind of fear of escalation dynamic maybe was present in the early months of the war when we really didn't understand Putin's logic and how kind of crazy he, he was and how far he was willing to go. But I think that dissipated, you know, last summer and fall. And I really do think that the Biden administration made a really good faith effort and European allies as well to equip Ukraine with as much as possible that we could pull from stocks to put them in the best possible position to launch this counteroffensive. And you can quibble over certain types of equipment, you know, fighter jets and, and long range weapons and so on and so forth. And I think some of those critiques are valid, but others are not. I mean, it's there's questions of inventory and the questions of cost and the feasibility of getting things over in a time frame that would actually help them on the battlefield. So, you know, I don't think there was some grand conspiracy to just, you know, get the Ukrainians so that they survive and that's it. But I do think that they have a good, you know, conceptual critique that we really haven't kind of grappled with what we want this to look like over the long term and what resources we're willing to put against that. Eric, I very much tend to agree that the translation of disputes over what weapon systems should be delivered at what speed into a kind of conspiracy theory on the Ukrainian side about Western intentions, including American intentions, is more a reflection of the failure of the counteroffensive uh, and the frustration of that, that, that the first major defeat of the war for the Ukrainians or the first major failure has no parents in a way that, you know, success... Uh, people don't argue with. That said, I do think that they have a pretty good argument with respect to uh, various different systems that, you know, we said, no, it will be escalatory. No, it'll be escalatory. No, it'll be escalatory. Okay, you know, you can have attackums or okay, you can have, uh, you know, HIMARS, right? And there's this pattern of one system after another that they felt like they needed in real time that we provided late and slow. And so while the overall assistance was extremely robust, uh, a lot of lag time happened uh, during which time a lot of people at the front got killed or things couldn't progress as quickly as they could. I'm curious how you evaluate that aspect of the Ukrainian critique of, of American policy. And as an ancillary matter, 
how much of that, to the extent that the critique has merit, how much of it was the U.S. trying to keep a Western coalition together, and how much of it was genuine U.S. anxiety about providing the weapon systems in question? Yeah, I mean, I, I see it from both sides. I think the Ukrainians definitely have a valid critique that, you know, we we tend to say no, 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 and then yes uh, in the end. And so they think that just by continuing to push, you know, eventually uh, the next door will be unlocked, but that it's far too much effort on their side and too much time is wasted as they keep getting to these positive decisions, but only after a tremendous amount of uh, time and, like you said, lives on the front that they believe could have been saved with earlier provision of weapons. That being said, you know, on the U.S. side, it's it's really, really hard. And, you know, people in the White House and Pentagon and State Department are dealing with really serious issues here and concerns about a wider war with Russia. And that's been one of the animating factors of the president's thinking from the get-go, which is, you know, this war is existential for Ukraine, but our overarching objective is to ensure that the war does not become existential for Europe and the United States. And that means avoiding, uh, you know, a direct confrontation with Russia. And early on, like I mentioned, when we were not quite sure of Putin's logic and his red lines, and we were testing each other and trying to gather new data, there was definitely caution on our side. Um, but I think as as the war went on and the concerns about escalation receded because it's sort of the war set into a logic of its own and we kind of understood that, yeah, you know, the Ukrainians could strike things in Crimea and hit the bridge and hit Russian airfields and, you know, it doesn't lead to World War III. Um, it, Putin, for all of his tremendous, tremendous flaws, still seems to believe in the credibility of you know, NATO and Article 5. And so he has confined the war to Ukraine. And so, you know, we we ultimately have our own interests here in protecting the alliance. And I think that has governed some of the decision making. So one of the things that I look at when I talk to Ukrainians is how sophisticated they are or are not about the American domestic politics of Ukraine. And as best as I can tell, most of them are quite sophisticated about the fact that there is a wing of the Republican Party that, for reasons that are understandably uh, uh, confusing to them, are friendly to Putin and do not appreciate uh, the Ukrainian struggle. But I have been surprised at how slow Ukrainians were to appreciate the gravity of the congressional dysfunction that Molly was just describing, that, that this declining salience of Ukraine relative to other priorities for the median Republican senator, and even more so for the median Republican House member, seems to have largely escaped Ukrainian attention, even as they continued to be very frustrated with the Biden administration, which was fighting this rearguard action to protect the premise of USAID to Ukraine over 
you know, fighting over the speed of delivery of individual systems. And I'm, I'm curious whether, you know, behind the scenes, there is, you know, more attention to, you know, just how delicate the premise of USAID to Ukraine is, or whether that aspect of domestic U.S. politics is just sufficiently remote from Ukrainian consciousness that it's, you know, it kind of rounds to zero in their list of concerns, which, you know, involve drones and missiles. I mean, look, it, I think it escaped a lot of people how serious this situation was. I mean, talking to people in the administration a couple of months ago, they kind of thought that, you know, yeah, there would be this wrangling over the supplemental, but that ultimately it would pass because this was just too important. And I don't think anyone predicted we'd be quite where we are today. Otherwise, I think you probably would have seen the administration kind of take a different approach towards it and prioritize it, you know, in a different way. Uh, And, you know, I think it's setting in for the Ukrainians what the challenges are. I think they don't understand. And frankly, I find it hard to understand how, you know, at least the Republican kind of senators who had been very strongly supportive of Ukraine aid, you know, McConnell, Graham, others have done what seems like a U-turn. And again, I understand, you know, in the way Molly explained about kind of the horse trading here and, and all of that, and it's just politics. But at the end of the day, to see a statement, you know, from Senator McConnell saying, you know, I encourage a vote against this, even if it is just a procedural vote, that translates over there into a lot of confusion about ultimately what the position is. Uh, and so, again, I mean, I think this gets to the question is, has the bottom started to fall out even among Ukraine's strongest supporters in the Republican Party that ultimately this isn't as important uh, as it was a few months ago? And I just I don't know the answer to that. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Right, so let's, uh, let's go back to that question, Molly, with respect to the House, where I think the answer to it is clearer than in the Senate. Uh, that is, the bottom really has fallen out. Assuming we can get to yes in the Senate, on some kind of an immigration package, one that will make Democrats extremely uncomfortable on substantive grounds. 
but which uh, frees up 10 Republicans to support a uh, the larger supplemental. And that goes over then to the House. What do we know about what happens then? Sure. So the House Republican Conference's kind of position on border issues that what we know about it is in the form of um, HR2, which is one of the bills that the Republican uh, conference passed out of the House um, earlier this year. Democrats in the Senate have repeatedly said that the, those provisions um, are a non-starter. So any sort of deal that if a deal comes together in the Senate with immigration and border provisions, it will not be as uh, as much as Republicans themselves had managed to get through um, the House earlier this year. I think at the end of the day, this is ultimately not so much a question about what House Republicans will vote for, though it is in, in some ways. So the nature of the challenges of governance in the House Republican Conference right now mean that really to get anything done in the House, whether it's a supplemental, whether it's the supplemental as attached to something funding the rest of the government, whether it's the NDAA, what really anything, basically you need to have an extremely large bipartisan majority. The difficulty that Republicans, first um, Speaker McCarthy, and now in some cases, I think even Speaker Johnson have had bringing things to the floor with only Republican votes suggests that anything that's going to get through the House is going to have to do so on a sort of large bipartisan basis, quite possibly under a procedure that we've seen used a couple of times for more substantive legislation than it's usually used for, called suspension of the rules, where basically something needs two-thirds votes to pass in the House. And so I think if this is going to get done in the House, it's going to get done um, with some Republicans, but also a whole lot of Democrats. And that's really the only way um, to get to yes. Uh, I think one of the, if I think about sort of places this year where things really got worse for the prospects of Ukraine aid, I think a lot about the vote at the end of September on keeping the government open and to go back to what seems like um, a million years ago, even though it was, you know, not actually that long ago. We were uh, headed uh, for the possibility of a government uh, shutdown. The Senate had um, indicated that they really wanted additional assistance for Ukraine, not as much as the Biden administration was asking for, but some additional assistance for Ukraine to ride along on a measure keeping the government open temporarily. They essentially got jammed by the House. So um, the House acted more quickly on a proposal to keep the government open than I think folks were uh, expecting, more quickly being sort of a facetious term here because they did it like 12 hours before government funding was going to expire. But then the Senate was basically uh, left with the choice of moving what the House had already passed and keeping the government open or trying to hold out against the House and try to get something that also included assistance for Ukraine. And at that point, basically, McConnell got rolled by the rest of the Senate Republican Conference, who said that we're not willing to shut down the government over this question of, of aid to Ukraine. And I think one of the things that suggests to us going forward is that if the choice is between funding the government and funding Ukraine, um, people are going to take funding the, the US government. And so when we look at sort of possible vehicles, if it doesn't get done by the end of this calendar year, if we look at possible vehicles where this could try and ride along in the new year, that's when we get to um, the question of funding the rest of the US government again. Um, and I'm not terribly optimistic, or I should say, I 
I think the September experience suggests that we should be uh, wary of that as a possible place for this this to get done. Uh, if that's if that's what it comes to. Um, one other thing I want to say that I was thinking about when you were talking about sort of the the read from um, Ukrainians on the role of um, the Biden administration and President Biden is that. We see a lot of that same sentiment, frankly, among members of the U.S. Congress themselves. So if you look at kind of what people have said, uh, particularly on the Republican side of the aisle in the past several days about the prospect of getting a deal in the Senate with border provisions, there are all these calls for President Biden to sort of somehow step in and solve this problem. The man doesn't have a magic wand. Like it's possible that he could help drive the talks, but at the end of the day, like they have to get to something that they can agree on. And I don't, you know, the U.S. president is a very powerful person, but he's not a magician. Um, and so, figuring out kind of how to think about the role of the president himself in this, I think, is something that uh, is is difficult for lots of people, um, including members of the U.S. Congress. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is if if you expand the point that you just made to include not just the politics of the U.S. Congress, but also the politics of the European Union, right, which has a weirdly similar mechanism to the House, which is that, you know, a single member state veto over everything, which is kind of like you know, Matt Gates doesn't like something, he can file a, you know, motion to vacate the chair and Kevin McCarthy's gone, right? And so you have these very small states like Hungary and Slovakia that can effectively exercise just extraordinary power in stopping things that is very similar to the power that you know, individual or very small groups of members in the House can exercise by way of constraining the leadership. And thus you have this situation where Biden is, even as he's been being criticized by the Ukrainians for not moving more aggressively, is struggling to maintain the degree of support in the face of relatively small numbers of people across many different institutions wielding disproportionate power to force a rollback. And I think it's a like what you're describing in the House is actually sort of a microcosm of the story of Ukraine aid, including internationally. I don't know. I'm curious, Eric, whether you think I'm, I'm, overstating the degree of delicacy of the European Union interface there. It's, but it seems almost as chaotic as the House of Representatives. Yeah, I mean, I think the difference being that there is a, an established pattern of negotiation among the member states and between Brussels and the holdouts, particularly the Hungarians, where, you know, there's a lot of hardball from the Hungarians. And then ultimately, Brussels and the rest of the member states give a little, and then Hungary goes along with consensus. Um, and so, you know, there's kind of this, the, the shadow of the future negotiations. And so they all know that they're stuck in this system together and they have to keep reaching consensus and they all have their own priorities. And so there is a little bit of an incentive ultimately to make a deal because if they're going to need anything in the future, they're going to need the rest of the union to go along with it. 
but but I guess my question is, are we making the same wrong assumption that you know you you just said a few months ago people weren't looking at this and seeing the bottom fall out? They would say, well, it's what it's just too important. Uh, and so the supplemental will pass. And that was certainly the way a lot of Ukrainians were thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, they underestimated the degree of erosion. And I guess the question is, are we doing the same thing with respect to the, we got a bunch of Polish truckers who were blockading the Ukrainian border now. Are are we doing the same thing with Ukraine, with with the EU that we did a few months ago with respect to Congress? You know, on the on the Polish thing, I, I do think that there will be relief on that uh, because, you know, there's going to be a new Polish government voted in most likely next week. And Donald Tusk will be attending the European Council meeting and, you know, his priority will be resolving this blockade and his ability to negotiate some sort of relief or compensation or subsidies for the truckers. Uh, with Brussels is going to be far greater than the outgoing government's ability, which, you know, they had this poisoned relationship with Brussels for for the past many years. So I do think, you know, that's kind of a a crisis that hopefully will have some uh, resolution soon. I don't think that overall support among EU member states is is really changing that much. But they're looking at us, too. And again, if we're unable to pass this supplemental, there will be a huge debate opened up in Europe about whether to double down, which some will argue, uh, or to scale back because they realize that they can't really replace us. And so it's a losing proposition to just keep funding from, from the European side without the significant American contributions, particularly on the military side. And so, you know, our ability to act decisively and coherently has a pretty direct effect on European cohesion. And that's been a huge part of the president's strategy going back to not, e- not even day one, but before the invasion is to hold the transatlantic alliance together. And, you know, the White House has done a really good job of that. But with this crisis in Congress, it could really start to come apart. All right. So speaking of domestic politics, uh, there has been a bit of a return of domestic politics in Ukraine itself, which uh, has had a bit of vacation from them uh, over the first almost two years of the war when everybody kind of rallied behind President Zelensky. Uh, So Eric, Give us a bit of an overview uh, of the recent events and the uh, recent stresses on 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 the unity, uh, and what you think that means for the year coming forward in Ukraine. One of the main stories I heard uh, when I was there was about this brewing conflict between the really the top civilian and military officials and. You know, this sort of manifested most notably in the article written by General Zaluzhny, who's the head of the armed forces in The Economist, where he, you know, basically acknowledged that the war was drifting into uh, a stalemate of sorts, positional warfare, uh, that the counteroffensive didn't achieve, you know, the breakthrough that had been hoped for. And this was, you know, published after months and months of public statements by President Zelensky and Zelensky's advisors that you know, there was still hope for a breakthrough and the Ukrainian armed forces was making progress on the battlefield. So it really cut against that 
sort of official narrative and the reaction from Zelensky's office was, you know, pretty sharply uh, critical of, you know, the timing and the presentation by, by General Zeluzhny. It wasn't just about that article. I mean, there have been kind of personality and bureaucratic conflicts brewing for really since the beginning of the war and kind of the, the underwhelming uh, results of the, the counteroffensive have really brought those to the fore. So Ukrainians I talked to are worried about a broader, you know, breach in, in the leadership, um, seeing both, you know, President Zelensky and General Zeluzhny as having, you know, made significant contributions to, um, to the war effort and seeing and it, them both. You know, Zeluzhny, just for listeners who, for whom that name is not as prominent as Zelensky's, uh, Zeluzhny is a very revered figure in Ukraine as somebody who sort of on the military side has really run the war. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. Um, he's, he's widely regarded and um, beloved within the Ukrainian armed forces. But again, Zelensky is also quite popular still, even though some of his you know approval ratings had started to dip a little bit. But the overall message is, you know, Whereas in the West, this is being presented as kind of Ukraine is on the brink of catastrophic implosion and, you know, there's going to be this huge split in the leadership and Ukraine is going to be engulfed in internal conflict. For Ukrainians, the last year and a half was really an aberration. Uh, I mean, Ukrainian politics is pretty... It's very fractious. Yeah, pretty bare-knuckled, you know, and right before the war, Zelensky's approval ratings were about 23%. And so the idea that you had the country rally behind a leader with 90 something percent and just have no political discussion whatsoever was really unusual. And so things are sort of readjusting to maybe a new normal. And maybe that's good for, you know, the health of democracy overall and to have this debate, you know, start to happen. There are concerns that Russia can exploit it uh, and that, you know, Things like an election, for example, which is hotly debated right now because it can't be conducted under martial law, but technically the terms of both parliament and the president will have expired, you know, by early next year. Parliament already did, president in March. So, um, you know, there is concern that kind of not having this unity is going to open the country up to, you know, Russia taking advantage of it. But still, you know, being in Kyiv, it was a lot less of a, dire, you know, alarm than we see in these Western headlines about how the country is on the verge of political implosion. And since you mentioned the elections problem, how, what is the current thinking on the subject? My understanding and my knowledge of Ukrainian law is pretty limited, but my understanding is that there are actually legal impediments to holding elections. And as you say, there are also legal impediments uh, to not holding elections in the sense that you don't want, you know, Zelensky to turn into, you know, Mahmoud Abbas, who's in the, you know, 20th year or something or 15th year of his four-year term. What is the current state of thinking about how you uh, uh, address this constitutional problem in in Ukrainian politics. Yeah, well, I mean, you're right to characterize it that way. It is a constitutional and legal problem. It's not just that Zelensky has artificially installed himself as president for life. 
you know, when martial law was imposed and Zelensky didn't do that by executive order, he had to have a vote of the parliament and they have to vote every 90 days to continue martial law under the law and martial law. There's no possibility for an election to be held, uh, which makes sense again, because when they were designing that law, you know, 30 something years ago, the idea was that if the country were ever under an existential enough threat to have to impose martial law, then conducting an election, you know, basically under the gun wouldn't be fair and it wouldn't be an exercise of democratic will. So there is a wide view that, you know, so long as martial law is in place, no one's pushing for elections. The parties in parliament got together uh, and issued a a kind of rare cross-party statement. It included, you know, the governing party and then all the members of the opposition uh, saying that there should be no election until at least six months after martial law is lifted. And why that's important is that what the what the opposition fears is that an election would be conducted too prematurely after, let's say, you know, martial law is lifted at some point in the first half of 2024. But it will take a while for the system to readjust to the regular kind of political competition that existed before. Uh, you know, all Ukrainian television stations are um, airing this telemarathon, um, same programming. There's not a lot of opportunity for the political opposition to be speaking. You know, press is, it's not censored, but it's very, you know, there's a lot of self-censorship and kind of very um, circumscribed things that can be talked about. And, you know, not to mention travel, travel abroad, travel around the country. It's restricted. There's military, um, you know, administrations in several of the oblasts. And so, you know, the opposition basically was uh, joining with the ruling party to say, you know, we're not pushing for an election right now, but we also don't want you to push for an election where you lift martial law and the next day you have a vote because that's not going to be democratic either. And so what is the, you know, there, notwithstanding the failure of the counteroffensive, there is still a 600 plus mile front of, uh, in which there is active fighting there, you know, there's no hundred miles of it where there's no active fighting. Um, and so what are the prospects for the short-term lifting of martial law in the rest of the country? To be honest, I think uh, the Ukrainians are not quite there yet in, in thinking about it. Uh, I think they kind of want to see what happens over the winter, and they're worried about a particularly brutal winter in terms of Russian uh, air and missile attacks against energy infrastructure and so on. And so they want to kind of make it through uh, reassess where things are, understand what uh, the level of aid from the United States and Europe is going to be, and then take some you know strategic decisions about how they're going to you know approach the war and and the political situation you know for the following you know six to twelve months. But I didn't get the sense that there was any particular plan about you know we're going to lift martial law on X date or this is the specific security condition. It's still a bit of an abstraction at this point. Did you come back feeling good about the state of Ukrainian democracy or concerned about it or both? You know, what I worry about is not really where we are right now, but where we could be in a couple of years if the status quo just sort of continues and there's this, you know, 
war that keeps going on to varying levels of intensity and Russia continues to hit Ukraine across the country and there's really no way to return to some sort of normal life. And basically, Ukrainian democracy is at that point a hostage to Russian aggression. And I don't really know how you escape that trap because the Ukrainians would love nothing more than for the war to be over and for there to be elections and you know, political debates, no matter how difficult they are, they would love to return to their normal lives. But they know that it's really not possible right now. And so, again, I'm, I'm not concerned now, but if we are where we are now in, in two years and nothing has changed, I do think at that point, you know, I worry a bit about kind of the fragility of some of their institutions, uh, which you know, had undergone a lot of reforms since 2014, but are still, you know, pretty, pretty in their infancy. And for me, it's important that Ukraine continue those reforms and continue to make progress towards the EU and that the EU extend a credible prospect of membership. I mean, I hope that decision is taken at the European Council meeting or as soon thereafter as possible, um, so that the impetus for continued, you know, reform and preservation of democracy is there. But the war is really the big thing standing in the way now. So let's uh, conclude your side of this with, uh, uh, we, we, we've stayed away from the military side of things, but I think it's fair to say that the prospect of a major breakthrough in either direction right now is limited and that we're looking at something that's at least in the short term more positional more i will not say a stalemate but more stalemate do you have any thing to add to that as to the state of the the military situation from your conversations uh, over there what I would say is that a stalemate, you know, it's not the right word. I haven't figured out a, a good replacement word, but the situation, the standoff that exists right now and a potential diminution of offensive activity on both sides is not necessarily a bad thing. And there is a way to take advantage of it for Ukraine, to use it as an opportunity to rebuild and to get some relief for troops that have been fighting on the front line for two years to get more training. Uh, because again, they, many of the new units that were formed, the new brigades had a couple of months of training in Europe before they were sent to the front lines, you know, with a year, maybe two years of kind of this more static war, Ukraine has the possibility of, you know, continuing this kind of military transformation uh, and becoming a much more competent and capable um, defensive force uh, and potentially being able to launch offensives in the future. I think the danger is that we get complacent uh, and we think that, you know, a static war is a static war and it always will be. And if we don't approach this time period as not only an opportunity, but a necessity to ensure that Ukraine is continuing to rearm and build its, its defensive and deterrent capacity, Russia is definitely going to be doing that. Yeah, they're not they're, they're not going to let this time go to waste. No, of course not. And their defense industry is already kicking up into high gear and they're mobilizing people and they're getting weapons from Iran and North Korea. And so we can't be complacent. We need a kind of a strategy to use this time 
wisely so that we put Ukraine in the best possible position if it wants to go on the offensive again down the road, or if Russia does, you know, again, so that we don't have a situation where Russia ends up achieving a huge technological and numerical superiority that then they can outmuscle the Ukrainians. Molly, for those Americans who are not going to uh, spend the next several weeks minutely following uh, the machinations in two houses of Congress uh, about the supplemental, uh, what are the key benchmarks to look for uh, for both uh, success and failure in the short term on this? Sure. Um, I, uh, I'm jealous of all of those people. Um, no, but... you're not. You, you, love, <laughs> you love nothing better than you know, sneaking away during the Christmas season to check on uh, it's, vote tallies. It's now, it's now such a normal part of my holiday season that I wouldn't know how to celebrate without it. So I think the biggest things to um, sort of be on the lookout for are Number one, the progress of the ongoing um, talks in the Senate um, around what it seems that Republicans and Democrats could, act- where they could actually get to yes on a um, on border provisions, because I think if they are able to unlock that, then as we talked about earlier, you know the support for Ukraine uh, aid is there, the support for um, aid to Israel is there. Um, I will say we haven't really talked that much about that piece of the package. There was a group of Senate Democrats who came out this week with a letter um, suggesting that they would be supportive of more conditions on that aid. I think that that was largely um, to sort of signal that as a position. I don't know that that is something that they would actually um, vote against a supplemental um, on the basis of. But I think if just sort of one to keep watching these um, Langford Murphy cinema talks and see how they continue uh, to unfold. And then honestly, to just sort of watch how long the Senate uh, stays in Washington um, uh, before Christmas. So I mentioned that the the House um, Speaker Johnson intends to adjourn the House for the holidays uh, on or about the fifteenth. You've heard lots of senators say that they would that if they haven't finished work on the supplemental, if they haven't done any number of other things, that they um, want to stay longer, stay you know quote unquote until Christmas. They are they do not have a, a looming deadline to fund uh, the rest of the the government government um, looming over their heads. So um, this would be the kind of thing that if they stayed in Washington to work, this is what they would be working on, especially now that the the Tommy Tuberville military hold situation has been not entirely resolved, but uh, we've made some progress in breaking that particular logjam. So really, those are the two things, watching the border talks and then watching just sort of how long um, is the Senate around um, and can they can they get to yes on something um, by the end of the year such that they could try and get the House to take it up in the, in the new year. One last thing on with respect to 702 reauthorization in FISA, uh, they slipped into the NDAA a short term, I think through April 19th, uh, reauthorization just to buy themselves a little bit more time to get the larger package done. Should we be looking for, I mean, a three month Ukraine aid package 
or even a one-month Ukraine aid package to tide things over so that you don't have this catastrophic end of the year, and then you can finish up the 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 border extortion stuff in the in the new year. Any reason we should be hopeful that you know we might see something like that? I think at this point, um, the prospects of a quote unquote clean um, additional assistance to Ukraine, even if it is for a short amount of time, that's just not um, doable at this point. Republicans, um, even Senate Republicans who are broadly supportive of um, aid to Ukraine have said that basically Democrats need to give them something on the border if they're going to um, vote for additional assistance to Ukraine. There are some of them, um, Mitt Romney included, who are very frustrated about the fact they haven't been able to resolve this yet. But I think at this point, it's it's aid for Ukraine is tied to provisions related to the border, or it, um, it doesn't happen. I don't really see a way to get a, a temporary bill through. I think if they could have done that, they might have tried it already. We are going to leave it there. Molly Reynolds, Eric Charamella, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and today it's produced in cooperation with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Our audio engineer this episode is the estimable Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, I need you to become a material supporter of Lawfare. It's the end of the year. It's the time of year where you get to look yourself in the mirror and say, hey, if I became a material supporter of Lawfare, I would do good in the world and not have to listen to ads anymore. It's the time of the year where you say to yourself, huh, that's a pretty good trade. I do good in the world, and in exchange, I don't have to listen to ads anymore. And you go to lawfaremedia.org slash support, and you sign up for the material support program. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.